Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville. 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. The U.S. is not trying to deter anything. It is moving up the escalation ladder and it is also being extraordinarily provocative. That was K.J. No, author, peace activist, and scholar who took time on short notice to come back on the show to discuss Biden's provocative agreement with South Korea to welcome nuclear-armed subs into their ports. Of course, we're provoking North Korea with this action, but is our action even more provocative? KJ will answer that and more. But first, my name is Jim Wolgamuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country. Thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcasts, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you that keeps Radio Free Nashville going. And as a result, this radio show, this radio show is then picked up by the Pacifica Radio Network so that we are heard all across the country. So if you think this is important, just go to RadioFreeNashville.org and click on the donate button and keep Harvey and I on the air in every time zone in the U.S. If you want to support the work of Veterans for Peace, you can go to our website, veteransforpeace.org. While the mainstream media, YouTube, Twitter, and other platforms are censoring voices of activism and dissent, we will continue to share those voices who stand up against the establishment, who stand up against the military, industrial, congressional, media, corporate complex, who stand up for us, the global us. So after Biden's announcements about a nuclear agreement with the leader of South Korea, we quickly called K.J. No, peace activist and scholar on the geopolitics of of the Asian continent who writes for Counterpunch and Dissident Voice. He's special correspondent for KPFA Flashpoints on the pivot to Asia, uh, the Koreas and the Pacific. K.J., welcome back to the show on such short notice and after listening to Biden speaking with the leader of South Korea, what's going on? <laughs> Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, uh, I think what's going on is this was a visit to Washington on the part of South Korea, of South Korea's leader. It's an act of fealty, an act of vassalage. Uh, he went there to get his head patted and also to declare his undying support of the U.S. plan for war against China. Uh, The U.S. has drafted the Indo-Pacific strategy, which is simply a rebranding of the pivot to Asia. And Yun Sagyal, not long after the Indo-Pacific strategy was released, he released his own Indo-Pacific strategy, which was simply cribbed and copied from the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy. It's simply a statement that he's a junior partner, a junior subcontractor, to the U.S. uh, strategy of encirclement and war against China. And so this was an affirmation of this. Uh, Now, in the current moment, the U.S. is escalating uh, on the Korean Peninsula. And that is because the Korean Peninsula is actually an important part of this encirclement and escalation to kinetic war against China. As I've said before, there are five key flashpoints, two of which have been neutralized. Uh, But if you think of the vulnerabilities of China as being a face, if you think of the continent of China as being a face facing towards the east, uh, the vulnerability is the nose, that's Korea, that's the bridgehead. And that's traditionally where most attacks on China have happened from sea powers, and that's been the case for 500 years. Uh, The other key flashpoint is uh, Taiwan Island, and Taiwan Island is like the chin. It is the uh, core interest of China, and once again, that has been one of the key areas where when war has been waged against the Chinese mainland by sea powers, uh, Taiwan Island has always been used 
as a staging ground. And that's the case from 1592 to the current moment. And once again, we see the same pattern happening. The U.S. is looking to trigger a war over Taiwan Island by creating intolerable provocations, denying the one China policy, turning it uh, the state into a suicide porcupine, uh, not unlike the Ukraine, like a kamikaze state to wage war against China. And of course, the third vulnerability is the throat. And that throat or the choke point is the South China Sea. So we can see escalations in all three of these uh, areas with the Philippines, uh, with uh, Taiwan Island and the Taiwan uh, Enhanced Resilience Act, which is essentially a declaration of war against China uh, and a complete and total nullification of the one China policy. We see some escalation in uh, on the Korean Peninsula. And North Korea, we have to understand this very, very clearly. North Korea is simply a stalking force for aggression against China. It's simply a pretext. It has always been a pretext since uh, since the inception of the Cold War. But in the current moment, the U.S. is escalating. It's increasing threats. It's continuing war games. And it's raising the temperature on the Korean Peninsula. And it's using that as an excuse to escalate against China. Let me give you two examples. One is, for example, the THAAD missile system. The THAAD missile system, which China continues to be, considers to be a grave threat, is designed to shoot missiles that come down through the exosphere of the planet, and it shoots them down between 150 to 40 kilometers uh, uh, in the air. Now, North Korea, if it were waging war against South Korea, would not need to fire missiles into the exosphere. In fact, it would make no sense. Mm -mm. And so the THAAD is really designed to prevent China's second strike in case there is a nuclear war. That is to say, it has a penetrating over the horizon, a radar that can penetrate two to 3,000 kilometers far into the Chinese mainland. And it would be used to detect Chinese launches and to prevent a second strike in the case that the U.S., uh, you know, did a first strike against China. Uh, another example, and this is where uh, North Korea once again is being used as a stalking horse. The Japanese have recently stated that they are going to place uh, Pac-3, that is Patriot uh, missile interceptors on Yonagiri Island at the southernmost tip of the Ryukyu or Okinawa island chain. Now, the thing about Pac-3 uh, missiles, interceptors, is that they have an effective range of 40 kilometers, uh, sorry, 40 miles. Uh, but uh, North Korea is over a thousand miles away from where they're placing these interceptors. And yet they claim that it is to intercept North Korean missiles. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever until you understand that that island is 40 miles away from Taiwan Island. Mm -hmm. So you see that these interceptors are being placed directly for war with China uh, over Taiwan. And that is the general pattern mm -hmm. that you see everywhere. Everywhere that they claim a North Korean threat or some other threat or this, that, and the other. It is always a pretext or a stalking horse for escalation against China. These are two concrete examples, but across the board, this is the case. So specifically what Biden did was he essentially threatened uh, North Korea with nuclear annihilation. This is the essentially the bottom line of what his declaration with Yoon was. He threatened North Korea with nuclear annihilation. So in that sense, he's not that different from Donald Trump, who in 2017 declared that North Korea would face fire and fury like the world had never seen before. And that's on par with other people like Colin Powell, who threatened to turn North Korea into a charcoal briquette and the countless other presidents that have threatened North Korea with nuclear annihilation. So you start to understand why North Korea white might actually want to have some kind of deterrent capacity since it's constantly being threatened 
with existential annihilation. But I just want to point out something very interesting about Biden's statement. He said it is unacceptable threats, nuclear threats are unacceptable, will result in the end of whatever regime were to take such an action. Notice that he said whatever regime. He didn't yeah. say the North Korean regime. He said whatever regime. And the reason why he said that is this is a nuclear threat against China. And so once again, the U.S. is militarizing and nuclearizing the Korean Peninsula. It is stationing nuclear-powered subs directly on the Korean Peninsula. And these submarines, you know, they have the capacity to destroy an entire country with 20 missiles with 12 MOVs each on them, you know, each with the capacity to uh, completely obliterate an entire country or continent if necessary. But they can be fired far out from the Atlantic or far out from the Pacific. But the fact that they decide to go all the way onto the Korean Peninsula and dock inside uh, South Korea's uh, coastline is just such an in-your-face provocation. It is really an act of nuclear brinksmanship. And I think that speaks to the level of threat-mongering and complete irrationality uh, of this current administration and the Yun government, which is simply going along with everything that this administration wants to do. So it's, you know, so it's not really something to deter North Korea. It's actually deterring. It's actually more encircling of China. Yes, I would say that it's not deterrence. It's provocation. Mm -hmm. In fact, anytime you hear the uh, U.S. State Department or the Pentagon talk about the word deterrence, always replace that word with provocation, because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Anytime you hear the word security, replace that word with aggression or hegemony, because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the U.S. is not trying to deter anything. It is moving up the escalation ladder, and it is also being extraordinarily provocative. And quite simply, you know, from the stand of international relations, that in, in general, in the, in the most general abstract sense, uh, there's no way for, you know, another country to know whether a defensive act is actually an aggressive act. This is what we call the basis of the security dilemma. But here in this situation, it is clearly uh, and very obviously a provocation, just as it is over uh, Taiwan uh, Island. And so, yes, you're absolutely correct. It is a stalking horse and it is a nuclear provocation. As I said, there's no need even to station uh, nuclear submarines in Korea. That if, From a purely deterrent standpoint, it doesn't make any sense. So this is in-your-face, uh, aggressive uh, threat signaling, and that can only be interpreted uh, as, uh, as provocation. Well, you know, whenever you hear uh, Putin say anything about, like, moving nuclear weapons to Belarus or saying anything that has anything to do with nuclear, he's condemned for irresponsible threats but it's the same thing we call deterrence right exactly (laughs) yes so the you know the double standards there or or Mm -hmm. i'll also point out if trump does it it's Mm -hmm. an incredibly rash act Mm -hmm. but if biden does it you know it's whatever it is you know it is it is policy or etc but they're both equally uh insane statements from my standpoint at least trump stopped doing those exercises and that stopped the ballistic missile tests North Korea was doing. And he was actually moving towards peace. And he actually said a few things that were true. He said that these exercises are incredibly belligerent and incredibly wasteful, which, my God, is is God's truth. That's absolutely true. Incredibly uh, provocative. I mean, North Korea, essentially, it's like a, a traumatized person. Every lunch and dinner, somebody drives up onto their lawn and and fires weapons you know into the sky i mean how are they going to react to that certainly they're not Mm -hmm. going to react well to it right so that's essentially what's been happening it's incredibly provocative and for a while there it looked like trump was dialing down the heat and he was actually making steps towards some kind of peace treaty now remember in 1950 the 53, the United States 
signed an armistice with North Korea. And one of the conditions of the armistice was to make good faith efforts to move towards a peace treaty within 90 days. Well, immediately after signing the armistice, the U.S. said that it was not interested in a peace treaty. And then it went on to violate the most important clauses of the armistice, namely that no foreign, no new weapon systems should be introduced onto the peninsula and that all foreign troops should be withdrawn. Now, if you look in North Korea, there is not a single Chinese uh, soldier in North Korea. They all withdrew after the war. The U.S. kept tens of thousands of troops, and they still have almost 30,000 troops on the Korean Peninsula right now. And so you can see already the bad faith starting from 1953 when the U.S. failed to uphold the most basic elements of mm. the uh, armistice. And then since then, it's continued to escalate and continue to keep things at this rolling boil of constant tension. Because as I said, North Korea has always been this Cold War proxy, first against the Soviet Union and now against China. It's a proxy for U.S. escalation. And if we were to ever have peace, then the U.S. would lose its foothold in Northeast Asia. It would lose a vital force projection platform. And as I pointed out, South Korea offers the United States uh, 600,000 conventional troops and 3.1 million reserve troops at the drop of a hat because the U.S. has effective operational control over all of Korea's troops. Uh, it, it exercises wartime opcon, and that gives it the moral hazard that it can wage war for free. It has millions of people, millions of soldiers at its dis uh, disposition for free. And that is the incredible moral hazard that, it, that forms part of this general picture of, of risk in Northeast Asia against China. What do you think Kim Jong-un's, uh, the leader of North Korea, what do you think his response is going to be? Well, um, Kim Yo-jong uh, has already responded. You know, she's his sister and she forms the kind of PR department or the communications department of the North Korean foreign ministry. And she's just expressed her, you know, uh, extreme displeasure and that North Korea will not back down, that this kind of threat will not make any difference to North Korea. And that much is true. North Korea never responds well to threats, simply matches the threat uh, tit for tat, because it knows that that's all that it can do. We know from decades of game theory that when two parties don't trust each other, the only thing that they will do is do tit for tat, or mostly tit for tat. And the only thing that actually has a chance of creating conditions for de-escalation is tit for tat. So I would expect further escalation. Uh, in the case of Trump, they called him a dotard. Uh, and uh, I think that the term is also applicable to Joe Biden. But I think this time, I think it will not be simply, you know, harsh words, because Trump at least was holding out some possibility of de-escalation. I don't believe the Biden team believes in de-escalation. I believe that they're so committed to unipolar, unipolar hegemony and kinetic means in order to maintain that I, I don't see an off-ramp here. It seems like they're committed to war. Unfortunately, yes. I, I think the ruling global elite, especially the ones that control the White House and are driving Western Atlantic policy, are deeply committed to hegemony at any cost, maintaining hegemony at any cost. And if that means the end of the planet, so be it, because they would rather see the end of the world rather than the end of their privilege. This is insane. Is the United States just waiting for China to respond so that they can then act? Are they just waiting for something bad to happen? Is, is that where we're at? I think that is a real part of the picture. I believe that the United States is trying to provoke a war with China. They want to wrong foot China. They want China uh, to be guilty of firing the first shot. 
And they've actually said this, literally, this is what they call the strategy of denial. It's a book written by Elbridge Colby, who was responsible for the 2008 U.S. national defense strategy. If you read the Australian national defense strategy, they mention the strategy of denial. Essentially, they're saying that we try and provoke China by crossing its red lines until it's intolerable, until it fires the first shot, at which point we will use this to bandwagon everybody else to pile up and to delegitimate China globally, as well as bandwagon and engage sanctions and kinetic war. That's the general plan. That's the, that's the strategy. And specifically in the case of Australia, Australia has pulled into it not simply because it's five eyes and not simply because it too has always been a vassal state. They really have not been sovereign since 1974, since the CIA coup in, um, of Gough Whitlam when he wanted to remove uh, you know, the listening station in southern Australia. But specifically, the U.S. has a plan of encirclement. And that plan of encirclement follows what we call the third offset, which is the idea that we want to expand the theater of war, disperse it as widely as possible, because we know that China has the capacity to defend itself with pinpoint defense uh, inside the Pacific uh, near littoral of China's coastal waters. So we want to be able to attack China from as many different points as possible. So that includes Japan, that includes uh, Korea, that includes Jeju Island, that includes all the Okinawa, Ryukyu Island chain going all the way down to Yonagiri, and then Taiwan itself, which will be the cornerstone of this uh, force projection, and then all along the Philippine Islands, and then trailing down into the Pacific and all the way to Australia. They want to create a wide theater of battle and this is this dispersion strategy, this diffusion strategy, the swarming strategy of the third offset, which is to be able to attack from China from as many points as possible so that China, China's defenses, uh, defensive capacity will be overwhelmed. And specifically with AUKUS, this is why you want those nuclear submarines. Australia, remember, Canberra is 6,000 miles away from the South China Sea and 7,500 away from uh, China. And so the only reason why you would need a nuclear submarine to defend Australia is if you were actually planning on taking the war into the South China Sea, if you were planning to threaten China more effectively. It, it, there's no reason for Australia to have a defensive strategy that involves nuclear submarines. So it is literally uh, not only a provocation and violation of nuclear non-proliferation, but it is a clear signal to China that it is all in for war and it is all in for nuclear war. The other war. thing that I will highlight is if you list, if you look at the current discussion in uh, in the Australian government right now, remember, if the U.S. goes to war over Taiwan Island, that war will be a violation of international law because Taiwan province is part of China and you cannot send weapons into uh, to non-state actors. That's already, uh, that is already uh, an in, a crime against international law. But if you were to ally with a non-state actor and wage war against China. Remember Taiwan, since uh, UN Resolution 2758, is considered to be part of China. And both the ROC recognizes it, the PRC recognizes it, the UN recognizes it, the international community recognizes this, and even the United States recognizes this. So to weaponize a portion of China against itself, and then to wage war on behalf of that portion of, of China would be a violation of international law. So it's because a violation of the UN Charter as well. It's a violation of the UN Charter, yes, because, because it's not a state and because the UNSC would never authorize it. 
-hmm. So because it is uh, a war against the peace, because it is an illegal war, the Australians are now faced with the dilemma. How do we participate in this illegal war without being accused of the crime of aggression, of uh, waging aggressive war, of crimes against the peace? And the solution that they found for this is to use the reserve powers of the governor general in order to initiate it. That is, they're not going to take this discussion. If they go to war with China over Taiwan, they're not going to take it to parliament. They're not even going to ask the prime minister to authorize it. What they're going to do is they're just going to ask the governor general, who is the representative of the queen, simply to declare the war and then to be the de facto head of the armed forces. So instead of going through the democratic process, they're saying that we're going to draw on the divine right of kings and use these reserve powers that we have inside this quote unquote democracy in order to bypass the democratic process completely. That's how advanced they are in terms of their thinking. And they also know that this is essentially a criminal act. Why, why hasn't the UN spoken out about all this weaponization of this non-state? Secretary General <laughs> hasn't said anything, has he? I haven't heard anything. You know, there are problems inside the UN structure. I mean, to a large state, simply because of where it stands and how it's funded, it yeah. is restricted in the kind of statements that it can make. Already, you can see that, you know, for example, Russian journalists are not allowed to go to the UN. So there are all kinds of little shenanigans that are being played. But if we look at the hardcore, uh, the charter itself and the yeah. UN institutions and international law, we know that this is illegal. It's foundationally mm -hmm. and fundamentally illegal. And I think as uh, the world moves more to a pluripolar, multipolar state, then I think the UN Charter will be more asserted in its integrity. And then I think these kind of statements will actually come up. But right now, it's a small circle of the US and Taiwan DPP separatists, and they're just running a little racket uh, around uh, the global media and around even the UN institutions. Yeah. You're listening to our latest discussion with author, activist, scholar K.J. No on Biden's recent efforts to provoke China, this time using South Korea. Well, what's, what's the relationship between North Korea and China? Because earlier you mentioned the U.S. has 30,000, almost 30,000 or 30,000 odd troops in American troops in South Korea and has access to 100,000 of South Korean troops. What would happen, what would be his response if North Korea went to China and said the U.S. and the West has all these troops and all these capabilities right there in South Korea? Why don't you send 30,000 Chinese troops to face off? Okay, so this is a really, really good question, Jim. And this gets to the heart of the danger and the dilemma that we are at right now. Just a, f a few precision. The first is, uh, you, know, you know, just for the sake, sake of accuracy, the U.S. has 28,500 troops okay. uh, in Korea right now. It used to actually have a lot. It used to have 40,000. It used to have almost 100,000. Right now, it's 28,500. And the U.S. has operational control over all of South Korea's troops, including its bases, its war material, its weapons, weaponry, etc. And that currently is 600,000 Korean troops. Jesus. And it's 3.1 million reservists. It's the largest military manpower capacity on the planet. So the U.S. has incredible uh, a force multiple, multiplier in its control of the South Korean military, simply because wars are still fought with men, with troops. And that is a huge amount of troops that you can throw into as cannon fodder for a war. So that is what it, that's, that is what's so dangerous. That's the moral hazard of the U.S. having control over South Korean troops. Now, regarding the relationship between North Korea and China, it's important to understand First, a little bit of the history. The Koreans, uh, when they were colonized by Japan, resisted Japanese colonization, first peacefully, and then they realized that by resisting peacefully, they were simply just getting slaughtered. 
And so then they took up arms and they went to northern China, Manchuria, and they waged a decades long guerrilla war against the Japanese uh, colonizers. And during this process, they combined forces with the Chinese People's PLA. At the time, it was the Eighth Root Army. But they essentially joined forces with the Chinese communists to fight back against Japanese colonization. And so there is an incredible, deep historical tie between the Koreans and the Japanese. In fact, it's not an exaggeration to say that if the Koreans hadn't worked together with the Chinese, there would be no People's Republic of China today. And the Chinese recognize that. They consider that to be a blood debt. And there is, uh, they will tell you, they're the first to tell you that there is no country on the planet which is more deeply tied in with our history than Korea itself, or specifically the North Korean communists. And so if you look at all the countries of the world, there is one country that China has a mutual defense treaty with. There is one country that China is duty bound to protect. And that country is North Korea. Okay. It doesn't have that with any other country on the planet, only with North Korea. And therefore, when the U.S. escalates against North Korea, it's essentially escalating against China. Okay. And it knows that. The Chinese know that. The North Koreans know that. Now, once again, just as in Taiwan Island, the North Koreans, the Chinese do not want to go to war over North Korea. They've been there before. In 1950, they went to war. This was when China was one of the poorest countries on the planet. It had been battered from three decades of anti-colonial struggles and civil war. And still, at a time when it was you know, bleeding and starving, it sent uh, over a million troops to defend North Korea in 1950. And we know that, you know, historically, you know, Mao even sent his own son to North Korea, right? Uh, his son is buried in North Korea. And wow. so I think that gives you a sense of how determined uh, the Chinese are and how they understand that history and politics. Uh, so uh, I think that the U.S. is aware of this. Uh, certainly the Chinese are aware of it. And they know that any escalation in North Korea is an escalation against China. And this is why, once again, China is trying to calm the waters, de-escalate. But it also knows that it, it is not going to defang North Korea either, because if North Korea is defanged, the U.S. will pull an immediate Libya on North Korea, and then you will have uh, U.S. troops right up against the Yalu, right up against the throat and the mm -hmm. belly of China. So they cannot uh, remove North Korea, uh, you know, uh, for reasons of strategic depth and as well as the fact that they are treaty bound to defend it. And so this is why North Korea is probably one of the most dangerous flashpoints uh, in the world right now. And certainly it is a nuclear flashpoint. But the other pieces that are important to this is Japan colonized uh, northern China, it colonized Korea. And so the fact that the U.S. and Japan and South Korea collaborating together just adds a whole nother layer of historical uh, anxiety and fear and terror to the equation because the Japanese were, they were the Nazis of East Asia. They, in fact, in certain circumstances, they made the Nazis look like Boy Scouts. You know, the Nazis were horrified at what the Japanese did. Mm -hmm. So there is that equation. And then the other piece of the equation, and I've said this before, is that when war happens against the Chinese peninsula from a sea power, it always happens in two uh, balanced uh, places. It, two, it comes in two matching areas, and that is on the Korean peninsula, which is a bridgehead onto the Chinese uh, continent, and uh, simultaneously from Taiwan because Taiwan is the island that is the closest point to China. And so historically, they've always been used in this kind of uh, double envelopment or hammer and anvil strategy. And we can see the same thing developing right now. The same provocations over North Korea are matched by the same provocations over uh, 
Taiwan Island. Uh, KJ, I'm remembering the talk you gave at the Veterans for Peace Convention a couple of years ago, might have been even three years ago, and you uh, that really was an eye-opener, but the way you described it at the time was that the U.S. Uh, wanted to wage a kind of war with they, they wouldn't necessarily have to win, but that it would uh, basically destroy trade through the Malacca Strait, which would set China's economy back for however long. Of course, it would do a lot to everybody's economy. But so it sounds like their their goals have become much more ambitious than they were then. Yes, I think at the time, this I'm talking about the 2015-2016 uh, plan, which comes out of air-sea battle and the RAND study, thinking through the unthinkable. And the primarily kind of conservative strategy, if you will, was to, was to wage war uh, in the South China Sea, which would affect traffic going through the South China Sea. They didn't have to win the war. Simply the fact that there was war happening would amount to a de facto blockade. And they calculated that that would result in a 25 to 35 percent reduction in China's economy. Essentially, yeah. it would implode it. Right. I mean, yeah. no economy can stand a 35 percent uh, reduction without uh, extraordinary uh, disruption and chaos. And essentially, the idea is that if you do this, China will you know, split from its internal contradictions. Uh, well, I think that is still in the works, and that's why you see all the escalation with the Philippines. Uh, but they're also seeing that since the 2016, that plan, an air-sea battle was released, China has created a kind of a, a workaround around the Malacca bottleneck, which mm -hmm. has been the Belt and Road, right? So the right. Belt and Road is largely a series of overland passages and also overland passages that run into ports that bypass the Malacca Straits and the South China Sea. And so since then, there's been tremendous development in the overland routes and the kind of bypassing of this. It's not to say that the U.S. still doesn't have that strategy in play. I believe it still very much has it in play, and that's air-sea battle and the accompanying doctrines. But it also wants to be more aggressive and more aggressively push for war uh, using Taiwan and Korea. And so once again, third offset, dispersed, uh, wide, vast, extended theater of war with two very specific pinpoints that are literally triggers for war. That's mm -hmm. what I see happening right now. And I believe that these plans are very, very far advanced. And I believe that we're simply in the stage right now where uh, you know, there's pre-positioning of weapons, pre-positioning of logistics. General Minahan said we'll be at war in two years. You know, everybody practice uh, killing people. Make sure that your affairs are in order so that you can be prepared to die and, and, and to kill. Uh, and I think that, you know, everything points uh, in that direction. Specifically, I'm talking about logistics. And I'm also talking about war exercises. Those of us who have been in the military know that uh, military exercises take on a different tone and different uh, tenor and quality when you are preparing for war as to when you are just kind of, you know, doing peacetime war, war drills. And we see that very, very heightened quality of these war drills and they're fundamentally different than what we saw before. Yes. Do, do, do you think two years is, do, do you think that's a good prediction or would you go shorter or would you go, I mean, we can all hope, we can all cross our fingers and hope that it doesn't happen at all. But I guess I'm asking you to, you know, with these provocations in Australia and now uh, Korea, the Korean Peninsula, and then last year or whenever Pelosi going to Taiwan, I mean, uh, is is that ball is that is that rock rolling down picking up steam i'm i'm afraid it is uh and i believe that the u.s feels that the clock is running down on its uh power and so it has an interest in moving quickly first the elections in taiwan are uh, are an unknown factor so they don't know uh, if they will be able to keep this uh, anti-China 
government in power, the opposition party, the DPP, is actually quite friendly towards China. And in the recent midterm elections, they trounced the U.S. Uh, you know, quizzling DPP. And so that's one piece of the timeline. Uh, Yoon Seok-yeol uh, in South Korea is one of the most popular, unpopular presidents in the history of South Korea. I think that he has a very, very short timeline and a very narrow mandate. Uh, and I think that, you know, he's somebody who is expendable. I don't think the U.S. can rely on him for very long. Uh, certainly, you know, he, he's not going to last uh, very long. Uh, and then um, in the Philippines, the EDCA, uh, the defense agreement, the that also runs out uh, shortly. And so there's that timeline. And then there's the fact that as the years pass, China simply gets stronger and stronger. It gains more allies wanting to join the SCO and the BRI and the BRICS formation just recently. Uh, I think 19 countries applied to join the BRICS. Uh, and at the same time, uh, it is building its economy. It's going from strength to strength. And at the same time, it's moving the world towards de-dollarization. Now, one of the key things to remember is the reason why the U.S. gets to wage war all the time. It's not simply because it has, you know, so many bases or it has, you know, operational control over, you know, for example, South Korea's troops, but because it has a limitless credit card. It has a limitless credit card that it gets to spend, uh, you know, infinite amounts of money on war making, and it never has to pay the tab. The reason why it never has to pay the tab is because it is the world's global reserve currency. Every country or most countries until recently were using the dollar for everything. And what that does is it creates a demand for dollars. It's a little bit like, you know, you, you run a casino and you just issue as many chips as you want to. You just issue those pieces of plastic. Other people have to bring in money. They have to work. They have to earn money. They have to bring in money. They have to exchange it for money. But as the casino, you just issue those chips as much as you want. Costs you nothing, and it's just a casino. And the U.S. economy is literally a casino. But this is a casino that also has uh, strong-armed goons. This is its military, and this military uh, gets to wage war for cheap or for free because it has had this limitless credit card, the exorbitant privilege of the reserve currency, and now that is starting to slip away as countries de-dollarize, and so. Uh, if the U.S. Uh, has plans for kinetic war, it has to uh, initiate them sooner rather than later because its sources of strength uh, are draining away. That is, in both in its allies, in its economic strength, in its military power, uh, and in its economic and financial power. All of these sources of strength are draining away. So the clock is ticking away for the United States uh, and certainly not for China. And its global standing is slipping away. Absolutely. So, so, so here's the here's the thing. If we can avoid war uh, over the next few years, then I believe that we are less likely to go to war. And so that's why we really have to put yeah. our you know shoulders to the wheel. I think the next few years are critical, and they're critical for the survival of the planet. One of the countries that hasn't been uh, folded into this U.S. Indo-East uh, Indo is Indonesia. What's the outlook for, for that country? Are they at all uh, interested in a multipolar world? You know, the ASEAN countries, the Southeast Asian countries, uh, fall on a continuum. So you have, you have countries that are strongly tied to the United States, for example, Singapore, which you know, stations U.S. troops. And then you have countries that are largely out of the U.S. circuit, like uh, Cambodia. Uh, and then in between, you have countries like Indonesia that are trying to walk a narrow line. Uh, Indonesia, you know, is extraordinary populous uh, island state. Uh, it's, you know, one of the largest countries in terms of population. 
uh, and it has a kind of a bivalent strategy towards the United States. Remember, Indonesia exists as a capitalist subaltern uh, because its uh, its entire leftist movements were eradicated through genocide. Right, we're talking <laughs> yes. about 1964, 1965, 1966, and you know this was you know the U.S. military and the CIA and and of course the Ford Foundation. Right, the Ford Foundation was right there training uh, the genocidaires. And since then, uh, tens of thousands of Indonesian military have actually received military training in the United States. So you can see that there's a strong military to military connection. And at the end of the day, military still controls. They still hold the levers of power. And at the same time, you can see that the current president understands that you know good relations and economic development depends on having good relations with China. And so I think he's trying to steer a narrow path. What was striking was he recently spoke about de-dollarizing uh, yeah, their I economy. Something about that, yeah. Yes, that you know that they that they 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 want to, uh, you know, get rid of Visa and Mastercard and de-dollarize their economy, and so that is quite uh, a strong, bold statement. So that signals that they're moving certainly in the economic dimension towards pluripolarity and less. Uh, under U.S. control. But I think most of the ASEAN countries are like that. They don't want to be forced to pick sides. Pragmatically, they're gaining tremendous benefits. Most of them, for them, China is their number one trading partner. So they don't want to be forced to pick sides. And I think they're trying to resist as best as they can. Uh, I think they will be pragmatic. They'll try and resist and they also try and get some, you know, concrete benefits from the United States if they are forced to pick sides. Mm -hmm. But Japan, Korea, and Taiwan are completely different. Are a different kettle of fish. They're essentially vassal or vassalized states. Well, KJ, this is a, again, and we actually kept you longer than I was was planning because I know you're busy, and I know you're, uh, I know you're working hard trying to get the word out. I understand that you're going to be part of a webinar from Veterans for Peace coming up in a in in a month or so, whenever that happens. And so, um, uh, any any parting words, and we'll let you go so you can get back to trying to stop this. <laughs> well, you know, I think we we all have a piece to play, which is to try our best to stop this push for war. And as I said, I believe the next few years, this year and the uh, coming few years are probably the most critical years uh, right now. And they may be the most important years uh, uh, of, <laughs> of the history of this planet, because I believe that, you know, we really are moving towards World War Three. Uh, World War Three, you know, uh, uh, Ukraine is simply simply prologue to an extended uh, you know, global planetary war that the neocons in Washington seem very, very firmly committed to. Don't take their words of compete and cooperate seriously. They're simply playing good cop, bad cop, Jekyll and Hyde. Mm -hmm. uh, and remember, Dr. Jekyll is Mr. Hyde. They're yeah. doing, they're just going back and forth. Uh, and so we have to do everything humanly possible to stop this escalation to war, to stop the empire from lashing out in its uh, spiraling uh, distress. It's, you know, you know, frantic desire to hold on to unipolarity, because if we do, then we have a chance to actually have a peaceful world. It's nothing to say that the U.S. can't coexist with other countries without dominating the planet. In fact, everybody will be much better, except the ruling elite rentier class who believe that they have to exploit the rest of the planet all the time for their exorbitant privileges and profits. So we really have to challenge that mindset. We have to challenge that thinking. We have to challenge the centers of power. We have to challenge the comprador politicians and media that enable that. And more than anything else, <coughs> We have to challenge the lies. We cannot tolerate the lies. Everything right now that we're hearing about China 
and Russia and uh, you know North Korea. These this is information warfare. We're being firehosed with information warfare, with lies, with war propaganda. And as I've said before, the more distant we become from the truth, uh, the more absurd the lies, the closer we are to war. And so for us to reduce that risk, we have to approach, we have to do our effort, you know, just kind of battle through the firehose and see if we can get closer to the truth. And I think that will be the most salutary effort for the majority of, the, of us in order to preserve peace. Well said. I think we're yeah. going to share that and, with many as we can, for sure. Yeah. And thanks so much again. We'll we'll let you go. And, um, you know, hopefully we will wait. Hopefully we'll be able to wait another six months before we check in with you. But uh, stay close. <laughs> All right. Will do. Thank you so much, Jim. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Harvey. All right. See you, KJ. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, there was our discussion with KJ No, and we have to say once again, thanks so much for dropping everything and coming on the show with us to talk about what is going on in the Pacific. So, as you know, KJ, peace activist, scholar on geopolitics of the Asian continent, and you can find his work. You can find more of his work by searching KJ no, N-O-H. And once you do, you'll see articles in the Asia Times, the L.A. Progressive, MECREC, Counterpunch, Black Agenda Report, Presenza in English, Dissident Voice, Radio Free, and not to mention the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour by just going to SoundCloud and searching Veterans for Peace. So we had one more thing. Harvey, you, you did want to point out that we just celebrated, or we just had May Day, and well, yeah, uh, and, and you had a clip today. because we got a little bit of time, and we were going to talk about the Monroe Doctrine, but we'll put that off maybe until next week. And yeah, I just thought you know May Day. I hate to have it pass without us at least uh, recognizing the importance of it and how it has been so suppressed and abandoned in the u.s where may day in the u.s unlike the rest of the northern hemisphere countries is now law day whatever that means whatever that means and so you um so peter Limebaugh, we had a whole program on him about may day the history and uh, the importance of it for the international workers movement and he had a uh, thought a very excellent couple minute summation about uh thinking about may day this year let's share that with the audience okay okay here it is it's meant a great moment of planetary reproduction we see this in the life forms around us the botanical forms and the other creatures the other animals this is May, this is spring, this is the renewal of life. And it's also a renewal of, of play and of struggle in the history of the modern world, of those who have had to struggle against endless work, endless toil and moil. And that began in May 1886 in Chicago and has quickly spread around the world, not as a matter of militarism or totalitarianism, but as a matter of collectivity. So this year is going to present a special challenge to us. And I'm confident that out of that challenge, we will find, whether it's in rent moratoria or jubilee or strikes against endless toil, we will find something new, some new way of celebrating this. Again, I repeat, it's a moment of planetary joy and of reproduction. And that comes though, just like the labor of birth, it comes with struggle. And our struggle is against the macro parasites who profit from our suffering. You can find that video, which is visually wonderful, by just going to YouTube and searching Peter Linebaugh that's L-I-N-E-B-A-U-G-H. P 
Peter Linebaugh talks May Day. A little bit of remembrance of May Day. We need to do that while we have a May Day to remember after KJ's talk. As I was explaining to uh, my daughter and uh, the family there about May Day, because nobody knows anything about it, I just said every capital practically in the entire Northern Hemisphere has huge May Day parades and celebrations of workers marching uh, in solidarity with one another. And don't look for it on cable. Uh, it's not going to be there. Don't look for it on the networks. It's not going to be there. It's essentially ignored and, and censored in the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so there it is. So we'll remember it. And um, we'll re we'll we'll try and remember that other countries throughout the world are going to celebrate May Day and celebrate workers, but we aren't, because like Biden did with the railroad workers. Oh well, <laughs> oh well. We so have how Labor we have Labor Day in the fall, which is oh well. It's nobody fall. else knows what that is. Labor Day is May Day everywhere else. Yes, and Labor Day is primarily devolved into the end of summer, mm-hmm. uh, last time you're authorized to cook out or go to yeah. So, So how are we going to end? What's the song? Harvey and I quickly realized that we lost a civil rights icon and wonderful performer last week with the loss of Harry Belafonte. So we will finish today's show with Harry and his version of Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom over me. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave. Oh, yeah. And go home to my Lord and be free. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom over me. And before I'd be a slave, I'd be buried in my grave and go home to my Lord and be free, everybody. Oh, freedom, oh, freedom. Sing it, sister. Come